Welcome to the Rich Roll Podcast, Episode 84, Part 2 of my conversation with Ultraman triathlete Christian Isaacson. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show, to the RRP, to the Rich Roll Podcast. Not surprisingly, my name is Rich Roll, and I'm the host where each week I bring to you the best, most forward-thinking, paradigm-busting minds in health, fitness, athleticism, spirituality, creativity, diet, art, nutrition, and even entrepreneurship. Why do I do this? I do this so that you are empowered with the tools, the knowledge, the inspiration, and the motivation to take your life to the next level, to blow through the barriers we impose on ourselves because we tend to be the ones putting those barriers on ourselves more than other people. We're our own worst enemy at times. And I want you guys to achieve your maximum potential, not just physically, but mentally, emotionally, and spiritually as well. The goal is to motivate and inspire you to take your life to the next level to help you discover, unlock, and unleash your best, most authentic self. It's about life transformation. It's about sustainable, positive change. That's the name of the game. And, you know, I was able to change my life in dramatic ways, like who I am, what I do, what I seek, and what I now find important in my life really bears little resemblance to what it looked like not so many years ago. And I just want everybody to experience this, to have this opportunity. And the truth is that it's always within our grasp. Even if that elevator is going down, you don't have to take it all the way down. You can get off at any floor. And my hope is that by bringing these conversations to you, you're empowered that you have the tools, you have the inspiration and the motivation to make that change now and not wait until you hit bottom. Okay, how's that sound? All right, well, that brings me to today. I'm in Beirut. I'm in Beirut, Lebanon. Like, can you believe that? I can't. Uh, How did that happen? What am I doing here? Uh, I have a speaking engagement here. Uh, I just spent an incredible week in Canada. Julie and I traveled all over Ontario. We were in Burlington, Toronto, and London for a couple of events. And I'm really inspired by that experience. I, I found the people there to be quite amazing. And there's so much interest and enthusiasm about wellness there. It was really encouraging to me. And I just left super energized to return to the Middle East. I'm back in the Middle East for the third time this year, which just blows my mind. I'm amazed to have this opportunity. It's really incredible because if you had told me a couple of years ago that I would be paid to travel the world, to go to these crazy exotic locations that I probably would never visit in my entire life, to talk about the things that I care about the most, the things that I'm most passionate about, I would have said you were insane. So the point is, don't limit yourself. Now, on the subject of limits, I think I just exceeded the limits of my podcast soundboard. Uh, I just got back from an incredible run along the waterfront here in Beirut. It's a beautiful day, and it was it was really a stellar experience. But got back, set up all my podcast equipment, got out my fancy microphone, connected all the cords, and uh, plugged in my soundboard. You know, when you travel internationally, you need one of those power converters which I have, I plug my soundboard into it, into the wall, and the thing just like exploded. There's like smoke coming out of it and a bad smell. (laughs) And uh, yeah, so it went dark on me and I had a little bit of a panic attack. I'm like, oh my God, I got to get part two of Christian's interview up. How am I going to do this from this remote location? I I just destroyed my equipment. I probably should have 
brought with me a surge protector. That would have been smart, uh, but I wasn't so smart. I didn't do that. So what am I doing? How am I doing this? Well, basically, I'm just speaking into my little digital audio recorder without the help of a fancy microphone. So if the audio sounds a little bit not as good as it usually does, that's uh, that's why. But it was a difference between not getting a podcast up today and getting it up any way I can. And the message is what's important. So this is what I'm doing. So hopefully uh, you can overlook the little tweaks in the audio. The interview is great, though. Uh, also, speaking of limits how to exceed our limits, how to surpass our limits. Uh, check out my new course on Mind Body Green. It's called The Art of Living with Purpose, How to Set and Achieve Goals, Transform Your Life, and Become Your Best, Most Authentic Self. Uh, from you know the path that I've walked the last few years and, and all these incredible experiences that I've had doing the podcast and all these amazing people that I've met, I happen to have learned a couple things, picked up some stuff. I've implemented a few ideas, tools, and strategies on the subject of how to embrace a new and more fulfilling, or should I say personally meaningful approach to life, how to uncover and embrace your latent passion and the fundamentals, the, the rudimentary aspects of how to properly set and achieve a goal, how to transform your life to again, tell the theme of the podcast so that you can become your best, most authentic self. And, and what I did is I took all this stuff that I've learned and I distilled it down and I put it in this online course, which is a little over two hours of streaming video content divided up into shorter videos, things we call modules. There's six modules and 14 sessions. There's an array of downloadable tools and resources that address everything uh, from the fundamentals of transformation. You know, like I said, how to properly set a goal, how to erect a roadmap, how to create structures, how to create momentum engage community and rely on accountability to make these changes and also why people traditionally fail or fall short in their goals i mean we all know we've all done it we all know people that have done it you set a goal you begin the process of working towards that and somewhere along the line you get discouraged or you abandon it or you give up hope why does that happen uh, and, and what do we need to do to avoid that in the future so essentially the foundational principles and practices behind every successful sustained life transformation, uh, I took a look at all of this and, and I put it all in this course. And I'm really pumped about it. I worked really hard on it. And I really do think it's a valuable toolbox that contains the assets that are required for you to make the changes in your life necessary to become the person you always wanted to and deserve to be. So if you are feeling stuck and you're not sure how to take that first step or how to best approach the process of beginning to change what your life looks like, uh, this would be a great place to start. So anyway, you can check that out. It's at Mind Body Green. It's on the homepage. It's easy to find. Enough of that. All right. So today we're back with Christian Isaacson for part two of our conversation and already uh, gotten tons of great feedback from part one. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, I would suggest you dial that up first before listening to this one. And I can say that part two just gets better. Um, in part one, we got through a lot of Christian's background and his life stuff, and now we turn attention more into his racing and his training. We talk about Epic Five. We talk about uh, his amazing uh, performance at Ultraman this past year, and we get into his service work, uh, his activities with nonprofits like Chris Lieto's More Than Sport, and also, and more recently, uh, the Amina Project, which is an NGO that took Christian to Kenya 
uh, where he provided much needed uh, medical assistance to underprivileged people in desperate need. Uh, and how these sort of activities play into his success, happiness, and fulfillment equation. So I said it before, I'll say it again. It's an honor to know this guy. Christian is a solid dude. Um, it's been a pleasure to be able to sit down with him and pick his brain for such a long period of time. And uh, I'm pleased to be his friend and to have him in his life makes me a better man. Proud to share this conversation with you today. So let's drop in and check it out. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel. But what you wear isn't just clothes. It is, without a doubt, technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built-to-move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com 
and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I think what you're, I think in part what you're trying to convey is this idea of being, uh, completely present in the, the activity that you find, like it's, it's a way of like really kind of, um, eradicating the thinking brain because of all of Mm. these sorts of the crazy pain and all these other things that you're doing that you really have to be just completely with yourself in the present moment just to get through to the next breath. And there's something kind of like we were talking about before, like very pure about that. Um, there's like an asceticism to that. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's a seeking, uh, aspect to that. And there's a, um, kind of an unspoken, uh, how would you put it? Um, not peace, but there is dude, for me, there is a certain, like for me, it, it, when people say spiritual or it's, it's, it's an enlightening aspect of it. It's like chariots of fire for me. Like I feel, I feel God's joy when I'm at that point. I really do. I really feel like when I'm out there racing so many more times, I lean on the fact that I'm like, man, this is what I've been designed to do. Like this is, this is a part of me that nobody else has been wired to quite like I have. Um, so there's this idea that when you're doing this, that you're on the path that you're meant to be. Like Liddell, is it Liddell and Chariots of Fire? That's his name. Yeah. Um, when he's like, this is, I feel your joy. Um, where kind of like, I'd rather be, I'd rather be, I'd rather not be in church thinking about running than being running and focusing on, I mean, that's, there's a, there's a, there's a kind of a stretch of a, of a connection there, but there, there were so many times when I raced the Epic five, even more slow than Ultraman where I was like, man, thank you God for this. This is, this is freaking so cool, dude. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I literally had conversations out there like, this is awesome that I get a chance to do this. And I remember saying that to Ian Adamson. I was like, dude, we get to do this today. We get to do this. Um, my buddies over there, when they came over, they were like, dude, you are fr-, in a very colorful sort of language that I won't repeat because it's a family show, but they're like, dude, you're insane. I, I remember I was riding on the bike and I was just, pi- I was just peeing, just pissing. And Lennox yeah. drove up next to me and he's like, I'm peeing right now too. Right. And, um, I remember was just, there a mo- was there ever a moment where you were like ready to pull the pin and be like, I'm done. I'm, I'm cooked. I can't keep going. Uh, Yeah. I, yeah. I think on, uh, Molokai, the, the, with the hills and the wind, I was getting blown around like a, like a paper doll. I'm like, I'm, I can't do this. Like it was literally like you get to that point. You're like, I'm, I'm going to fail this. Mm-hmm. Not, not like, not like a failure at Ultraman, which 
was the closest I've ever come to quitting. But this was just more like you step back and like common sense takes over and they're like, okay, let me get this straight. You paid all this money to come over here. You're away from your family. You're, you, you, you're, you're, you, it's like you're pissing gasoline when you pee because your urethra is all jacked up. Like, like the, the core, like the core guttural parts of the body are speaking, like the saddle sores and the need for sleep and the aggravation and the winnowing away of who you think you are to who you really are. And, um, that day three for me, it might've been day four had the, had my buddies not been there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, day three for me was, was dark, right? And were you, we run in the marathon in the, in the late into the night that night yeah. there along that long stretch yep. of straight highway. Yeah. That's what, yeah. that's when I was with Ian uh-huh. and listening to Ian talk to me about, um, some of the struggles he did with the eco challenge. Cause he's on TV and all the, you know, he's won all the eco challenges. Um, he had some really interesting insight to stripping away who you think you are to who you become in a race and then running with who you've become, not who you think you are. Oh, that's interesting. So elaborate on that a little well, bit. Well, I, I actually told, we were talking about that and I actually, that kind of came to me. I'm like, I've realized that to, to compete in this, because earlier in the day on the bike, I was um, dysfunctional. I, I come to the conclusion um, on the end of the bike, like I can't race who I think I am. I have to race who I've become. Um, kind of like use the weapon that you have. Mm-hmm. And then Ian's like, a lot of people spend years trying to figure that out. And I said, well, it doesn't mean I figured it out, but um, I know that I've thought about that moment many times after that and have struggled to understand why I can't keep implementing it. Like, why is it that we remember so many things that we think we should do the next time we race only to forget them the second you get pushed up against the wall? Mm-hmm. Um, but I did that a lot in Ultraman too. And that's the lesson I learned in Epic five on days four and five. I just got to race who I've become, not who I started out to be. Cause dude, you're changed every day. Every mm-hmm. day I woke up that morning thinking I had just broken up in it from a relationship from the day before. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you got to kind of go through the baggage and go through the weeding out. And, um, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of the best way I can like summarize, um, that yeah, I like that. I mean, did you ever have those moments, particularly, you know, when you're doing the la- the latter miles of the marathons where, you know, the wheels are falling off in the middle of the night and you're just like, I got to make it to the next lamppost, you know, where yeah. you have to break it down in a literally like, you know, hundred yard. Day increments. five was that was for me for that. That, that day five in, in that was day four it started um but i ran with morgan christian for a little bit mm-hmm. and i was yelling i'm like dude as like, we were coming down the stretch i'm like just tell me man when the next like he was talking to me and um and i was just like just make it to the next light just make it to the next light because right. you hear that and you read that in books and triathlete magazine they give these little like just mm-hmm. find a lamp post and run to it and you're like that's retarded when you're out there that's what i was doing mm-hmm. um and what was that like when you finally finished that fifth marathon? I mean, what was the, you know, what was the sort of scenario around the finish line that night? Well, down at the pier, it was cool that day for me. Cause I was, I came in first, mm-hmm. not because see, that's weird to even hear because when Jason and I, there was nothing, it was, it was just, we're just doing it. We're not like racing. You know, you had five guys and you had, you know, there's a little bit of it wasn't ego getting mixed up it, it, with like, who's going to do this the fastest and all that kind of stuff. That, that was not was, part of the equation. There was some it. overriding things of that, about that. And, and I really fought that, um, 
not because I wanted to race, but you're fighting against yourself. But the, the last day I thought I was coming in first, not because I would beat everybody else, but I remember I was going through all of my um, experiences with each athlete on the course that day. And I'm like, ah, oh, man, they're not here. Like I really wanted, I just wanted us all to be there mm-hmm. and kiss the ground together. So and when you got to, when you got there, was there anybody there? Or was it just you? <laughs> there was yourself? a, there was a handful of people and I got a lay put around my neck. Uh-huh. Um, but, but I thought, I, I remember thinking that I'm like, I wanted so bad. It, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a feeling of beating everybody else. It was a feeling of loss because, because we weren't all together. Right. Um, and I, I remember so bad feeling guilty because I wanted to wait around, but I was, I was, I was, uh, I was filleted, man. Mm-hmm. Um, I just was, I, I don't know, man. It was just so, such a flood of emotion that was, um, you know, I saw Joseph Arjum, uh, not too many miles back and we stopped and hugged and high fives and gave each other, you know, attaboy and good job. And Lester, I, I was thinking about Lester on the day before I stopped on the bike when he was going and I gave him a hug and I told Jason, I'm like, dude, I'm not racing today, but I want to run the queen K or I want to run down a Leahy drive in the light. Cause it was getting dark. And, mm-hmm. um, Mike Flaherty had already fallen out at that time. Cause he ripped up his leg. Um, so so there you were in the end. I mean, what was the uh, what was the recovery like for you? I swam the next morning with Ian. Yeah. The weird thing with me with that was that I recovered unbelievably fast. Like, do, do that, all I needed like was like two nights of good sleep, and I was I felt totally fine. Three weeks after though, I was hammered. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, the weird thing is, and I, I don't know if this happened to you, but uh, excuse me. Um, my coach told me this would happen. He's like, you're actually going to, he goes, you're not going to believe me, but you're going to actually gain weight, you know, throughout oh, yeah. this week because your body is in such trauma and crisis. It thinks you're trying to kill it. And, and you're it's t- holding all the water, holding on to everything because you're running such a massive calorie deficit. Yep. Like you're, you, there's no way you could eat enough to keep up with the amount of calories you're burning. Right? And the carbs. Go so, so it's like, well, how could I be gaining weight? Because right. your body is literally not letting any of it go. And I remember when I was done, like I was bloated. Yeah. You know, like my body looked all weird. Yep. And then like 10 days later, it just was, yeah, it's, it's a, gone. That's exactly like, what happened to me. I dropped like 15 pounds yep. in a day or something. Yep. That's like exactly that. what happened. Cause thing. carbs hold on to water four times more. And, mm-hmm. um, that's exactly what happened to me, Rich. And the yeah. body had to finally realize, Oh, okay. You're not going to, we're out of the woods here. You're not going to kill me. Yep. Yep. That's exactly that, that is exactly what happened. I went swimming with Ian Adamson the, the next day and I got about a kilometer out. And I'm like, dude, I got to go back. I could feel myself kind of getting tired. And, um, so, and then I did a quick jog and just, and then I just chilled, dude. Um, just really relaxed and let my body recover. So, and then that's no when injuries, that's when Ian, no, no, I, I did. I had, you know, I, I attribute some of that to living fuel. I, I I've been with, that's when living fuel jumped on board with me the 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 supplement and it's still to this day um one of the things that i tout is is a is a secret weapon for me so but i had no injuries i felt gi was good um i felt like i really went through it and and came out the other side better it's amazing man and uh you did it in five days you did it it was an incredible experience and i remember talking to you shortly thereafter and uh it wasn't long before you're like back on this idea of like trying to qualify for Kona. And that's when you said, and I was like, what are you doing, man? I you know. should be going to Ultraman. Like, look what you just did at Epic five. You just yeah. lit it up. Like you got to refocus, man. Like clearly the ultra endurance is suiting you well. 
Yeah. And you know what, dude, to be honest with you, Rich, to be totally transparent, I just got, I got sucked back in because Ian Adamson's like, Hey, why did you come to Canada and run with, I mean, he, he's like, Newton's doing this. And, and I was like, he's like, this is what guys do. They do really well. And then they go to these races, they do building. I was like, all right. And I go to Canada and I get an accident. I get totally jacked up. I ripped up my disc wheel and that was disheartening. And then I'm like, ah, oh, that was my- Ironman Canada. Yeah. That, th- that happening. Yeah. Um, I got hit on the side of the road, fixing a pop chain, a dude oh, slammed. Wow. I, didn't know that. I had to buy a, some dude's tire that I had borrowed. And then I'm like, I told, and then my wife and I, Ron was like, you got to take a break. And I'm like, no, I, I, that was a bum deal. I got to do this. And I ended up doing yeah, that. Then, you know, I, then it's like, what is this dragon that you're chasing? You know what I mean? Dude, like I chased it. I, I, I really did. And things started to turn for me. Um, I got that 950 in Texas. I took a top 10 and I was like, okay, now this is it. And then the, the, I, I got a really bad vibe with the, with the whole cheating thing. It seemed like there was a lot of weird stuff going on. And then I talked to you again and you're well, like drafting. Yeah. In Texas. Yeah. There was in Texas. I, I was like, I'm going to Kona. This is it. I took top 10 and I'll get a rolled on slot. It was the first time I'd, I'd coached myself. I did three 20 something. I had a great marathon or three thirty something marathon. I ate solid food right after I felt great. And then, um, I remember talking to my coach. He's like, a lot of Europeans won't take that spot because this is their trip. Mm-hmm. And I really had a bad taste in my mouth after that race because I thought there was some real hanky-panky stuff going on in the bike course. And I talked to you that morning before I raced. Mm-hmm. And you tweeted me and you're like, get it, Isaacson. Get it. This is your, this is your time. And then uh, after the race, I talked to you and you said it again. You're like, dude, it's written in the stars, Christian. I think you need to get – I need to get – you need to do um, – and I still didn't learn, Rich. I still did two more. Yeah, did you, <laughs> how many Ironman did you do? In that year, I did Louisville, or Texas, Louisville, and Cozumel. Wow. Um, and I was close all the time. I mean... Right. You um, like right on the edge there. And then you were just like... And then after I talked to you, I got off the phone. I said, all right, I'm, I'm doing the Ultraman. And Randall's like, all right, good. Mm-hmm. And I called you up and she's not saying like enough, enough is enough with this insanity. Uh, no, she's, she sometimes says that still, but it's all in love and jest. Um, but yeah, that's when I, I said, all right, I'm going to take a break and re recalibrate, figure this out and then do, do Canada. Uh, so the idea is, uh, you want to do Ultraman, but you can't just go to Ultraman Hawaii, right? Like you have to go to do another, you have to complete another Ultraman race before you can get into that race. So you decide Ultraman Canada is what it's going to be. Yep. And for people that are listening, there are other Ultraman races that are all affiliated with each other. I think there's Florida, they're starting in Australia yep. one, I believe. Next is year, there a Brazil one nope. too. Or? Right, right now, well, there is an Ultraman in Brazil, but it's oh, not affiliated. I don't think. It, yeah, right. Um, so, but the Canada one, which is in Penticton, is really the feeder one for the Hawaii. Race, dude, it's right? magic. It's it is a magical event. And so, this is going to be your thing now, right? So yep. you so so do you get some different kind of training advice? Are you still like self coaching yourself? This now? is when Chris Boudreaux picked me up. After I did Ironman um, Louisville, after I got that 950, mm-hmm. Boudreaux and I met. And he's like, dude, I want to help you. And he's like, you think about this. So he coached me through those two Ironman, which was really good. Chris is a solid, solid guy. But after I did um, Cozumel, um, we sat down and talked. And I'm like, 
the part of me was like, I still think I can do it. You know what I mean? You still get, cause you learn so much. And, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, Chris picked me up and he's like, I want to coach you through, through Canada and then through the world championships. If, if that's the way you're going to go ultra map. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, so he coached me. Right. And so how long before he started coaching you and Ultraman Canada? It was, it was synonymous, like the same time. It no, like, but I mean, how, how long had you trained with him prior to? Oh, Ultraman oh, I see. Canada? Well, it was, I'd been with him for f- five months. Right. And then the year leading in, um, like, so I was with him about a year before Canada. I got you. All right. Yeah. So how did your training, uh, differ when you set your sights on, on Ultraman Canada versus preparing for Ironman? Well, I talked to you uh, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I talked with Hoth a little bit. We, t- we, 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 you know, dialogued a little bit. I talked with Gordo. I talked with a couple of people, um, just feeling things out. But Chris basically, essentially, um, his idea and theories were consistent, long weeks, intelligently done. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was consistently doing 20, 22, 23 hour weeks mm-hmm. consistently, um, with, uh, and I was training with him too, man. There's a couple of times I went riding with him and he just blasted me. Um, but he, I'd said, dude, the reins are yours. Um, so he trained me, um, essentially like a pro, Mm -hmm. um, and it paid off. Um, yeah. So you show up at, at Ultraman Canada and what was your expectation level? I wanted to win. You wanted to win. Yep. You were you were you were going for the win first. You're like, I did Epic Five. Yeah, I'm I'm ready to go. Well, Chris told me, look, he goes about two months before. He said, you are not researching anybody. Don't log on. Don't look at the start list. Don't look at any. He goes, I'll do that for you. Don't worry about it because Chris knows I can get in my head. Mm-hmm. Chris is very very. He knows I I get revved up and but he's very honest. Sort of like that. You know, there's a proverbs in the Bible that says a knife from a friend is much better than a kiss from an enemy. Mm-hmm. That's how Chris is with me. Right. Um, and he said, don't don't even research it. He goes, here's the plan. This is what we're gonna do. Um, sub three hour swim, and uh, then. I talked to you a couple of times and I'd been dialoguing with Chris and I've been talking to rich. Um, it's such a dynamic race. It's almost mm-hmm. hard to go in with the hard plan, mm-hmm. but we had a skeleton established. Um, but I thought I could win, man. I mm-hmm. really did. I honestly think I could compete and win. Right. And so we, I want to get to, uh, Ultraman Hawaii. So I don't want to spend too much time on this, but like, how did that, how did that play out? I got out third in the water and Rhonda said the swim record was broken. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? So now you start freaking out. Oh, there's some guy who's really fast. And yeah. And and from that point on, I, I just raced for three Mm -hmm. days. I literally just chased and raced. So you just threw your race plan out the window or just, (laughs) dude, it wasn't, it wasn't like totally thrown out the window, but the solid food idea, like I learned, I learned a lot of things, dude, the learning curve and the, uh, but I, I chased and chased and chased and chased and chased. Um, and I battled with a Naki de la Para who I've become pretty good friends with from Mexico who won Ultraman, uh, the UK he won, Mm -hmm. uh, two years prior. And then Craig Percival, I become friends with and Dave Matheson, the, the top and Bergen, John, that guy that won Ultraman Canada two years before all, all four five of us were just battling it out for three days. Right. So for the listener, there's a lot of triathletes and Ironman people that listen to this right. podcast, but not very many people that have done Ultraman. So what was the biggest difference? Like in terms of 
what you expected it to be versus what it actually was. Like for somebody who is kind of in the Iron Man mindset and has this idea about what Ultraman is, what was what was what was the biggest thing where you're like, whoa, that was not what I thought it was going to be. The the bike was way faster. Like I I, I pushed harder and higher watts than any Ironman race I'd ever raced mm-hmm. consistently for the first and second day. Um, so, and I was unbelievably fit and I didn't realize it until it was too late. I think part, that was part of the, the, the problem for me. So as far as that learning or telling somebody else that is that you don't, if, if depending on how you're going at it, 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 it could be a really, it turned out to be a, a race versus an event. Mm-hmm. I guess that, it, that would be the best way. Cause I, I, I mean, we were just hammering each other on the bike and then the run was, and the run might've been a, the, the back half of the run for Ultraman Canada was so right. hard. And, and a big part of that run is on trails. Yeah. The right. back half and Bergen, the guy that, that I was battling it out for, for third or second for, cause there was a Matheson was pretty far gone. And the, the run was man, so many dynamics come into play. Um, especially after the race, when you can talk to everybody like Matheson had asked me, he's like, dude, I couldn't believe you weren't with me. The, cause I talked to you. I talked to you the day before mm-hmm. the day of the run. And you're like, dude, everybody's going to go balls to the wall out of the gate chill. Um, and I remember Rhonda driving up to me going, you got to pick it up. I'm like, Rich, no, no, I'm good. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, Boudreau and I had a plan, so I was sticking to it, but the, the back half of the run and the bike were the biggest surprises for me. Like mm-hmm. it's just, it just was just so unbelievably faster paced than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and what about like the fueling and the nutrition? Oh, the fueling sucked. Because I, I, I had planned on, like, I got into the got into the feed zone a little bit. David Lim. Mm-hmm. Um, I was Alan, using, Alan Lim. or Alan Lim, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The other one's Bijou. The other, Bijou, yeah, the chef. Yeah, Alan Lim, right. I'm sorry. Um, I, I was using some of that stuff during training. The rice mm-hmm. um, really, really worked well. But, like, Chris Lay had that interview um, after Ironman, and he said, there's still a part of me for all the years racing that I've done, I have not yet quite totally Figured understood <laughs> the, the way that your body reacts when you're racing, even though you're going yeah. the same intensity. So the solid food screwed me up. Hmm, interesting. Um, yeah, a little bit. Um, and so are right, you're armed with, so you finished that race. What place did you get there? I, t- I took, I, I, I missed third by six seconds. All right. So your fourth place, yep. but, uh, you get your slot for Hawaii Yep. and, uh, the, the Canada race is in Gen- July, uh, August. Oh, August. All right. And, and Ultraman Hawaii, obviously Thanksgiving weekend. So Correct. you don't have that much time in between. I mean, do you start to you just ramp it up again nope. or do you just try to ride this fitness through and like, I took, a, I took four weeks off. Wow. Chris was like, okay, we're going to do this. Let's take, oh, it was three weeks, three mm-hmm. weeks off and then, and then an easy week and then build from there. Um, he goes, I think you can do this. So I was like, all right. Um, and then rolled right into to Hawaii. Right. And so what were some of your big, like key workouts that you needed to make sure that you got done going into Hawaii? Uh, I did, I did a couple hundred plus mile rides at race pace, obviously. Um, a lot of runs split in half where I'd run 20 in the day 
in the morning and 12 at night. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris was very smart, making sure that I didn't hammer myself, but he wanted me to get the miles in. Um, and then I did interval work with Chris, mm-hmm. um, speed work, um, because Chris was always, I, I could go out and hammer an Ultraman. Um, Chris was like, I don't doubt the fact that you can, he's like, dude, you're, he would always say the Epic five. He's like, you're, you're built for this. He's like, you can do this. But some of the key workouts that we had to get in some long swims, mm-hmm. um, and then the, the bike pacing in the Watts and then just getting the miles on my legs. And so how much of, of your bike work was sort of interval based as opposed to zone two kind of aerobic style work a lot more than I thought it would be. Yeah. Chris had me, the impression that I got was that you did a lot of intensity work. I did. And it paid off, man. Um, it really did. I, I became the best cyclist I'd ever been. Um, I, dude, I went through the Ultraman Hawaii split at uh, the, uh, the day number two. I, uh, Steve King, I remember, came up to me and he goes, dude, do you realize you went through the... F-? And, and granted, this is coming off the volcano, so the first 25 miles, of but I did, did it in 442. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but, but my bike intensity, Chris had me... Like, I'm not that strong of a biker. And he brought me up. So with, yeah, with intensity, you, I mean, you demonstrated some mad bike skills in that race. So let's just walk it, walk it through. I mean, you did not get off to a shining start. It was you had a, a rough time in the swim. Day one was the worst day of my racing uh-huh. career. And my ever. understanding was that the, the currents were pretty rough. It was not like a fun day out there in the, in the ocean. Yeah, it was that going back to the question you talked about the Epic five, rich, that was the only, that was, I didn't think I was going to finish. Mm-hmm. I almost quit. I really did. Um, Kai, the guy that was my paddler, firefighter from Hawaii, I, I couldn't quit throwing up. I just couldn't quit throwing up in the how, water. How far into the swim before you started throwing 40, up? 40 minutes. Oh, wow. And I knew something was up because I thought I was, I thought I was in the water for an hour and 20 or 30 minutes. I blogged about this thinking I'm usually a really good, I have a really good knowledge of how long I've been in the water. And I thought, okay, I've been in for at least an hour and 20 minutes. And, and he's like, no, you've only been in for 40. Mm-hmm. So that plays, that plays games with your head when that starts. And Hillary, like this, like Hillary, I was like, where's your cape? It. I'm mm-hmm. like, what, yeah. what's up with this crap? She was freaking gone. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, whatever that's, you know, so let her go. And I was like, it was on. Well, let her go. That, that implies you had a choice. I didn't have a choice. Do <laughs> what I did. That'd be I, seriously. I was, I was. Hillary, I know you're going to listen to this and I know you, you hear me tell you this, but your swimming is impressive. Um, yeah, she's very, she's impressive for many, many reasons. She is. Um, but my swim was 45 minutes, 40 to 45 minutes slower. I I just didn't think I was going to make it rich. Mm -hmm. Um, I was throwing up and I was, it just, I'm watching from afar. I'm following the whole thing on my computer and I'm waiting for the splits to upload. And I was like, Ooh, looks like you didn't, you know, you, you had a rough time. I didn't know what was happening, but what, so you got, how long, how long did that swim take you? Three forty. Uh, yeah, it's unbelievable. It was, I wanted to be, I was like, ah, if I could get in, like if I could come in around three, I'll be happy. And, And dude, I had Canada to go a straight shot, basically point to point swim. I didn't consider any physiological effects from swimming perpendicularly. Well, I mean, there's a, you're it, swimming in a flat lake right. versus swimming in an ocean, a turbulent where you're ocean. getting, you're getting hit on the to, right side. Like, of the- kind of put it into perspective and to, to kind of emphasize the turnaround that you inevitably, that you, that you had later in the race. When I won the day, when I won day one in 2009, I swam 221. 
So That's you swam ridiculous. 340, and then in 2011, I swam 217. That's ridiculous, dude. So you're coming in like an hour and 20 minutes after that. So the deficit that you're looking at making up in order to get back into the mix and, you know, rub elbows with the guys that are, you know, at the top of the, at the you know, leading the pack, right. you've got, I mean, that could just crush your spirit. So how do you get on the bike and face that 90 miles on that first day and not allow your spirits to just completely crush you? My spirits were crushed. They were, right? So, dude, the, you know, so what's going on? I heard, I heard Gourley going, it's an early race, dude. It's an early race. Um, because dude, there was some, a little bit of hype before that race. I mean, some of the stuff, the yeah, you was, get it. I mean, Gurley was giving you some hype. There was a little bit of love getting thrown your way. Like you could be, you know, you, you know, you could be in the mix here. And so then first, so early in the race to come out in such a rears is it sucked for a split yeah. second. I let that get in my head. And then I'm like, who gives a crap about that? I heard Rhonda go, babe, breathe, breathe. So my buddy Joe was there and Ian, um, Ian was scared because I was, I, I just, I couldn't believe it. I looked at the clock and I was 14th and I'm like, I'm like, dude. And then that climb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you get out of the water, especially if you're sick to your stomach. And the first thing you have to do is like this, what is it? Three miles. Of That's more than that. Straight up. Dude, riding, it, it like, was with right from the beginning. The funny thing is though, two miles in that climb, I was back. Mm-hmm. Like, Osmo, like things were leveling off. I was sweating like crazy and I was overheating and I was hyperventilating and I was trying to, but, but I could feel myself go like, all right, swim's done. Let's go. Um, and, uh, I remember my crew van finally catching up to me after the climb. And I said, I am going keep up. Mm-hmm. And so I just had, I, I, I thought to myself, I have got to, I've got to go. Um, and it was but de- how do you how do you combat all this self doubt and all the you know I mean that had to be welling up in you like you know all this work and all this these high expectations and 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 now I'm so far behind like how are you def- how are you trying to quell the you know what the negative impulses that I'm sure inevitably were firing in your brain Rhonda because I thought about how much she sacrificed for me I mean I, and you know I think about I think about my relationship with Rhonda. And, you know, Evelyn and Ian were there and I had my closest friends, Joe and Dorothy. And I remember thinking this swim, like, I'm going to let these people down. Like they came all this way. My, my, our closest friends took time off work and, um, and to be clear, your crew was your wife and your kids and then Joe and Dorothy. Right. All right. And they always tell you like, never have your people you care about in your crew. And I, I didn't pay attention to that rule. I have my wife. It's the exact opposite for me. Like, and you do too. Ended up being fine, but it's definitely a risk. Right. Did Rhonda have any idea what she was really getting involved in? Cause well, she could meet Canada. Right. All right. So she had that experience before, but but in Canada, did she, no, it was a shock, but she was, she was solid, man. Gosh, she's so solid. But I started thinking about that. And after I got over that little pity party I had out of the water, I'm like, I'm not think that's it. I'm not, mm. I don't care how bad this hurts. This I'm not going back on. there. Yeah. And well, that, that's some, that's some pretty strong mental fortitude because I think a lot of people would have just folded. I mean, not to say that they would have quit the race, but they would have let their guard down and said, uh, you know, dude, happening. I, I'm just, I'll just get through the day. I had the, I had what I told you about what happened in, in, in at the Epic five. I'm like, I, I kept thinking, I, I thought to myself, I'm like, all right, here's where I'm at. 
this is now my, like in, in medicine, you have to go with the baseline, which is establishing their vitals right off the gut. And, and then, and then you go from there. I'm, that's what I said is like, okay, I'm, a, I'm shifting my baseline. This is normal for me now. Mm-hmm. This is where I'm starting. If I look at it the other way, then you fall back into, and dude, you know what? I, I'm a Christian. My, uh, that's the number one thing in my life. And, and I tell people all the time, I'm like, dude, if you think I'm lame for believing that, that's fine. But the negativity and the, that kind of stuff, dude, that breeds in you, regardless of what avenue you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, if It's like a rabbit hole, dude. Um, it's like that interview I saw of you the other day. Like, don't even go down it. It's not even worth it. So I established that baseline and I move forward. Nonetheless, that still proved to be the most physically tough part of the day, the bike climb and the mm-hmm. winds on the backside. It was freaking nuts, man. Mm-hmm. Um, and people were dead. I don't think five people finished that day. Five people. Right. So there was crazy winds on the last 20 miles up the volcano. Right? I think I remember talking to you the night before and I was like, just make sure you've got some gas in the tank. That's exactly what you told you me. When you get to the base of the volcano, because that's going to break your back and you're going to completely underestimate how challenging that. That's exactly. That, that I had that going through is. my head too. Yeah. And I've said some choice words to you that you weren't there, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, and my, my buddy Joe was running next to me too. And he was saying some choice words and Ian was like, I could see him in the car going like, did you hear what Joe just, cause Joe was just motivating me. Um, but dude, you were right. When I finished that first day, I, that was the hardest day of my life racing. Right. I think that, um, when I going into the, my first Ultraman in 2008, <clears throat> I drove the course, but I hadn't spent time in Hawaii, like training. I you drove really, the whole course. I drove the whole course, like two days before the race by yourself. Right? You just went by yourself. By myself. Yeah. In a van. Dude, how was that? It was, it was pouring rain for most of it. Actually. Did it scare uh, you though? The, the, the vast distances of it really, yeah, it intimidated me. But I think what happened was when you drive that day one course, the day one bike course, yeah. when you're in a car, and you've never been there before driving up the volcano doesn't seem like any big deal. Like you don't feel the wind and the grade, there's like an optical illusion where it doesn't actually look like you're climbing. <laughs> it's like it's, vinyl it's and CD. Just, it's just gradual enough that when you're in a car, you don't really notice it. Yep. So I completely underestimated how hard that first day bike was, but driving the course, I was so intimidated by the distance on day two that day two, the day two 170 miles on the bike actually ended up being easier than I was expecting it to be. Because psychologically you were maybe because it was a psychological right. trick. I don't, I don't know. But. Huh? That's, I, I never, I didn't know that you did, that you drove the course, man. Mm. That's interesting. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce 
my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof, with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. So you had to have just been hammered when you finished day one, right? I was, like, dude. So you're you're scrambling to move up the ranks. So you're doubling down. You're probably going harder on the bike than you expected to. Way and harder, you're de- and you're depleted and dehydrated from the swim. Everything. So what what uh, you know what what happens when you cross that finish line after day one? Uh well, I crumpled up on the side of the road and vomited like a four year old baby that was sick. Um, it sucked. Uh, but I knew Ron was like, you moved up to seventh or eighth. And, um, I are you think like, are you taking Chris Boudreaux's advice and trying to not, you know, be in the heads of your competitors or are you just obsessing on where's Alexander? Where's Mira? Where's, you know, actually, I mean, knowing you, I think I know the answer to this, but Boudreaux is very tactical. He's very smart. And, uh, he and I discussed a race plan where, cause, cause I met, I met Alexander, I met Ribeiro before the event started and he didn't know me from Adam. And for the listeners, he's like multiple, you know, world champion at this he's, distance. He's, he's, he's been undefeated in the last four years, mm-hmm. five years. Yeah, and he's won six times. So, right. Anyway, and, and Krieger was there. and um, But he met me before. I, I waited to meet him. He was getting interviewed and I positioned myself just so he could see me and I just waited and waited and waited for 15 minutes. Rondo was in the car waiting for me. He caught up and shook my hand and he put his hand on my shoulder and he's like, look, man, it's your first time. Just enjoy the race. Don't push. Just, in, just, just sit back and relax and enjoy it and, and, and just everything's going to be great. You're going to enjoy yourself. When it gets hard, high, pick up your cadence, slow down. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like a grandfather. Um, and I was thinking about that at the end of day one, I'm like, that guy was right, man. This is, you know, this is, um, this is the real deal. That's what I th- kept thinking too. I mean, like, how is it different from Canada? Uh, other, oh, than, dude, other it, than the, other than the washing machine, you know, swim experience. It was a nightmare compared to Canada. And I remember Steve Brown saying at the Canada race briefing, you're going to climb a hill, but if any of you have ever done, uh, Ultraman Hawaii, that's a hill, that hill coming out, that climb coming out of the swim. I was wrecked after day one. In Canada, I was a little bit jovial, shaking hands, um, sitting in an ice bath. Um, but after day one, I was in the car, I was crying and screaming and Jim Gooley was looking at me and, um, I remember I was just delirious and I, I, I read a portion in Job the night before that said when, when Job, when God talks back to Job and he's like, all right, are you, are you done pissing and moaning? Now stand up and answer me like a man. Um, mm. I kept saying that, like, I just was out of my mind. Like I was standing up and I, I just felt like I was like, stand up and answer me. I just felt like Nate, everything was out there and it, you feel like it's against you. The wind, the rain, the water, the swimming, the heat, you turn a corner and it's hot and and you uh, also think that it's personal, like you're yeah, the only dude. one who's suffering from that. Exactly. And, you and don't everyone think any, else is immune exactly. from these things. You don't think right. anybody else is, you know what I mean? You don't think anybody else is hurting. Um, but 
dude, you know, I, I was scared. I guess I was scared. That, that would be the best way. I mean, when Alexander made those comments to you, did, did you take that in good spirit or yes. were you like insulted? Like, cause he's sort of saying, Hey man, don't sweat it. Like, you know, take a back seat and don't worry about it. There's another year. I felt like he was playing head games with me and Gurley was right there. And I kind of looked over at him and smiled and chuckled. And, um, I felt like he was the, um, the wise sage. Um, I wouldn't, uh, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who plays head games. Not, he not head games. Like he's, he's quite genuine. Yeah. Not head games in the sense that like, I'm trying to beat you because he's the best. Like he, he, right. You were not a threat to him. Ex- not, <laughs> so, dude, I don't think anybody was, yeah. I don't even think, I, I think nobody was a threat there. Mm-hmm. I meant like, um, almost head games to the point where he was like so nice. And so like, it, it surprised me at how much, I guess maybe head games. I, I shouldn't have said that. Not head games. Um, I, I, I just felt like it was a very grandfather way to approach me. Well, I think with all of his success at that race comes a certain responsibility and an ambassadorship. That's what and, I, and, and I think that like when I, in 2009, when I won day one and he came in like, I don't know, uh, you know, 20, 30 minutes behind me. Right. You know, I was like, oh my God, I just beat the world champion by, you know, a, a pretty, you know, significant amount of time. And at the finish line, we were taking pictures and he had his arm around me and he was smiling and he was genuinely Dude, happy for me because I think that he has such a command over that race. I that agree. Distance that even though I was, ha- he was recognizing that I was having a moment that was a big deal for me. Right. He was able to, enjoy that with me no, I, without I, me being a threat because he knows that the race hasn't even started yet and that he is in full command of the, I agree. his and destiny I, I in think, that race. Yeah, I think, I, I don't think, I guess head games is not the right phrase. I think um, he seemed so, he seemed so relaxed and I had never met him before. He seemed so relaxed and so comfortable and so certain and confident that it appeared to me like he was playing. I didn't know him from any, like, he just seemed like he was like everybody else you can kind of feel has got like they're nervous, mm-hmm. but for him, it was, um, a hug and a hand on the shoulder and a handshake. And that's normally how I am towards people. So it was very different for me to get that. Um, and throughout the course of becoming a close friend of, or a friend of his throughout the course of the next three days, I realized just how, um, sincere he was when he told me that. Mm-hmm. And I, and Gurley noticed, and Jim and I talked about it too. Um, but I, I, I told him after racing and riding and getting to know him was one of the greatest honors of my life. Cause dude, mm-hmm. I was starstruck. I was, I was, it was a starstruck moment for me. Even Ian said, dad, you turned kind of white. <laughs> um, I just didn't know, um, the command that he has, his presence just commands respect. Right. Um, and the default mechanism that we think is he's screwing with me. Right. Um, but he gave me the, the, the end of his race and I don't want to jump to it too quick, but he gave me a shirt. We changed a shirt and mm-hmm. he said one of the coolest things to me anybody's ever said. So well, just say it now, man. He said, I want to be here next year when you win. And I, I was like, what? And he goes that day two performance on your bike. He said, that's how you win this race. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm not saying that because I, I just think that he, 
like, and there's a picture of him with his hand on my shoulder that Gurley got. And Jim's like, the, I, the look between you guys from the day that you met in the, in the last picture, he's like, it's priceless. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he said that to me, I don't think he was insinuating, like, I'm going to be the next year's champion, but I think he recognized in me the desire to want to win. Right. And that was played out magnificently in your day two bike performance. So we talked, I can't remember whether we talked the evening. Yeah. I think we talked the evening after your day one. And you said, call me in the morning. Right. And I was like, call Yeah. And I, and I think my, I can't remember exactly what I said to you, but I think it was like, listen, day two is a long, it's a long ride, man. And that the ride really doesn't even start until you get out of Hilo. Right. Yes. Like just, just bide your time, pace yourself, just, you know, stay within your, within your, you know, wherewithal yep. and, you know, resist the temptation to unleash until at least you get, you get north of Hilo, which is how many miles into the, into it is that that's like, I don't know, 50, 60, you're on 65, 70 right. miles. And so, and so what do you do? Well, Mark, Mike Toysik and Hillary Biscay took care of me that night. They brought me mm-hmm. lava salt and potatoes and my stomach was jacked up. I talked to you, talked to Boudreaux and, um, I, I, I freaking laid the hand. I just went balls out. Um, I stayed with blasted it, from, <laughs> well, dude, listen, it, you know what though? Listen, cause Chris, Chris, Chris talked to me and he goes, he goes, dude, here's the situation. You're in eighth place. You had a crappy swim. Let's see how you feel in the morning. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, I know there's a 25 mile descend. We're going to hit speeds up to 50 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not want to get dropped. And I didn't, I stayed with, we all started together. Uh, I was with Hillary. We chatted a little bit and then was it. So for the listener, the first on day two of the is it, day two of Ultraman is a 170 mile bike. 171. And the first 20 miles are straight downhill Yep. and it's draft legal, which means yep. you can ride as a pack and when the gun goes off, it's like people are taking off for a time trial and everyone's trying to get into jockey in position to get into this front pack so they can make it down the hill first. And you make this right hand turn when you get to the bottom and then everybody starts to separate and you're no longer allowed to draft. So it's all about like trying to get into position for that turn. Right. And the, the pace with <laughs> the pace is rip roaring. It's you know? ridiculous. And I remember in 2011 when I did it was pouring rain. Yeah, we were we were like it was me. I remember riding right next to Jonas Colting, and it was pouring rain. And I was like, this is insane. Yeah, on tri bikes with those stupid little yep. brakes that yeah that suck. I was like, this is crazy. Yep. Yeah, I I thought the same thing, and it wasn't raining. It rained later in the day, but um, and that's. I remember thinking next to Ribeiro watching him just how much of a, like being in ringside seats, watching him the three days, just masterful, like the comfort and ease that he went down that hill. And it's, it was, it was like watching Tiger Woods play golf. I mean, so I told myself, stay with him, just stay with him. Um, Hillary had told me since I was having so many problems with my stomach, you need to get something down soon. And Chris said the same thing. And Rhonda said the same thing, but she's like, mm-hmm. baby, you've got to eat. So I got a bar in and I felt good. My stomach was settled that first 25 miles or whatever things settled down. We make that turn and some dude behind me eats it. I think it was, uh, I can't remember who it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and then somebody crashed at the bottom, right? Yeah. 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 Um, 
And then it was Ribeiro, myself, Krieger, and Sheeper, and we're all kind of in front. And I noticed that Ribeiro was having some kind of mechanical issue. He reached for some tri-flow, and it looked like he was hitting his headset or something. I couldn't quite figure it out, but he did it twice. And Mm -hmm. every time he did it, he slowed down. And I was like, all right, if he does it again, I'm I'm gone. And I did. And I did not let up for 100 miles. And he is a masterful tactician, and he is extremely patient because he understands how long the race is, and he knows where to pick his battles. And having seen what you had done the day prior, I think he probably felt comfortable with like giving you a little bit of a leash and seeing, you know, and not being threatened by that, even if he was dealing with a mechanical. I mean, what was your... Well, I found out it wasn't mechanical. He was reaching for water uh, um, or fuel. And I was, I, I, I do landmark. I, I developed a thing called Epic Five called Landmark Racing. Um, and, well, I didn't develop it, but I started thinking about it. And then it was just a thought when I was wandering on the roads. And then this time it came back to me and I'm like, my strategy is whatever natural landmark I get to, that there's a, there's a deviation that, that I can turn around and look at. I don't want to see anybody there mm-hmm. for the rest of the day. So I would like, I'd go and I'd look way back three miles back at sea hill. And I just would, I just pushed it. I just, I just pushed it, man. I pushed it as hard and as fast as I could for you really, you just redlined it right out of the gate, but I felt so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I had cr- my coaches, my, my coach is like, dude, go to the rivet if you have to, but lay it out there if, if you feel like you can do it. Um, he's like, don't be stupid. Don't go, you know, heart rate 170, which I wasn't. Um, what but, was your heart rate? Uh, I was, I was staying consistently around, you know, like 150, 152. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it was your, it was your zone three for your bike. Right. And my Watts were, I was pushing Watts. Um, and I don't think necessarily I push heavy Watts, but I have a very aggressive position and I'm very aerodynamic and I have a very fast bike and I just felt like things were clicking. And, um, I heard the splits as I was going by Steve King for the, for, you know, four and a half hours in a row. And I was well ahead, um, until I got caught mm-hmm. and that's when, so you, re- you, you, you rode off the front. So you're riding, you're, you're leading the, you're leading the field yep. for how many hours is that going on? Uh, oh, it's close to five. And are you looking back like, yes. <laughs> and, and, and are they within eyesight behind no. you? So you don't even know. So when you look at your crew, would you say, Hey Rhonda, like how, what's my gap? Do you know how, do, do yeah, they know anything? Do they have any information? My buddy, about- Joe just kept on going, dude, you're, you're killing them. You're uh-huh. destroying them. So around, around 80 miles in or 90 miles in, it might've even been over. No, it was, it was actually over 112 in because I knew how fast I hit that Ironman checkpoint. It was 120, 130, somewhere in, in that area. Um, I told myself, okay, now really push it because they're getting worried and I want to take out as much as I can of their legs, especially Roberto and Krieger's legs. Um, so I did that and that's when I started to redline, but I just didn't, I just was like, is that like in the climb into white man? Yep. Yep. Right. And I was vomiting, like I was vomiting uncontrollably, but I just did not. I just was like, I'm just throwing caution in the way I'm just going. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and so where do they start to catch up? Ribeiro caught me at mile 150 something. And we stopped so at a light. Is that right before the climb up the call? Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. It was right. It was right before that or, or, or very close because 
he caught me to light and he put his arm on, he put his hand on my head and, um, that light at the gas station right before you turn right. And then you're going to, no, no, it was, it was like in a rural area by a school. Um, I was, my memory's kind of shade, kind of hazy. Maybe it was by a school by like a market or something, but I remember like right before the Kahala's. Yeah, it was on the back. It was like 140 miles, 150 miles in. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's about right. Yeah, and he put his hand on my shoulder at the stoplight, and I saw he had been vomiting all day too. Mm-hmm. And um, I felt like he was playing mind games with me then, but more like a Jedi master. Like, like he put his hand on my shoulder and he nodded, and it's the first time ever I felt like a pro. Did like, he say anything to you? He just nodded his head, mm-hmm. and it literally it was like a, like it like it was like a and it was he it was well it's just respect it, it was but it was very there was just something about that man that I'm attracted to, um, and I stayed with him for a little bit and riding behind him and his legs and his positioning that far into the race mm-hmm. being that solid that's when I started to doubt myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, he is, uh, I don't know. It just was, he's able to, I mean, in terms of like a champion, he's everything you want your champion to be. He's very incredibly gracious and he's giving and he's kind and he always has a smile on his face and he loves his kids, loves his kids, involves his kids. And yeah, I mean, it's like the guy's an amazing guy. Right. But then in the, it is when it's in, when the rubber meets the road and everyone else is falling apart and he still has perfect form. You know, know, I apologize to his, um, I apologize to his crew guy, the guy that he has there every year, uh, Jose. Yeah, because there was a part of that race where he totally misread what I said. I was like, tell him to get up here. Tell him, because I wanted him to, at that time, like, I think the honest and the starstruck of him being there was gone, and it was more like a competitor and an adversary and an asset, depending on where you are in the race. But I called him, I told his guys, like, I'm waiting, you know, pull him up. And when he started to catch me, he's like, oh, he's coming for you. I mean, it was very, and I was like. Oh, he thought you were taunting. Yeah, so after I went up and I gave him a hug, and I'm like, I hope I didn't. And he's like, no, 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 no. I understand. And he gave me, the guy gave me a big hug and a kiss on the neck. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a big burly dude. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, then Ribeiro did the same thing at the end of day two. And it was, so you, so day two, you, uh, did Miro catch you as well? Or you were second behind Miro and I battled. Yeah. So I knew there was something else going on. He right? and I so battled for about 20 miles going up the, and he, he broke me uh-huh. and I saw the look in his eye. Um, and he broke me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, it, it was a, it, I mean, we were killing each other and I read somewhere in an article, he had asked over to his crew, is he done? And they nodded his head and he took off like a lightning bolt. Right. So um, he's just waiting for the moment where you were going to crack. I thought I cracked him. I thought I cracked him because I dropped him the second or third time and he was not coming back. And I remember I switched my arrow helmet to my regular helmet because I'm like, I got to keep the gas on, but I was overheating. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grabbed my regular helmet from Rhonda and then I felt good for another five or 10 Ks. And then he started to catch me again. And then the, one of the climbs, he, whew, he just took off. Right. So, all right. So you finished that day third. He wasn't as personable as Roberto either. As Alexander. Well, there's a language barrier too. Yeah. I mean, I love Miro. I was so glad that he won the race and finally had his day. I, dude, I so. was too. And he was just as like, I don't want to say he's personable in a bad way. Like I, I'm meeting a new class teacher, mm-hmm. but I just meant like, he seemed 
he seemed more focused than anybody else there. Mm-hmm. Whereas Ribeiro, Slovenia, you're talking about the difference between a Slovenian and a Brazilian. And a Brazilian. And where, so whereas, it's like it's Ipanema Beach, and it's like the guy who's. In, you know, I mean, like, come dude, on. I, I know, <laughs> dude. And 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 Alexander had just kind of like this, just like the, he was just kind of like in touch with everything. So, um, and then I was, I was just in awe that I was racing with these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and for the listener, I mean. Uh, you know, these, these guys, Miro and, uh, Alexander are the, the consummate champions. And, and ultimately in this past year, Miro finally, Miro has always been the second run, you know, the, the, the sort of also ran to Alexander, who was always the champion, but they're the best of friends and they train together and they love each other. And Miro finally had his day and, and it was awesome. Uh, <clears throat> got to win the race for the first time, which was a beautiful thing. But I remember following the race and I'm like, Oh my God, like Christian is just redlining from the get go. Like, I hope this doesn't blow up and become a disaster. And you know, you held on with your, you know, the hair of your chinny chin chin, yep, and, like, like I, stayed in the mix and, and you know, you didn't, you didn't win the stage, but you redeemed yourself and then some and earned the respect of, you know, and Krieger gave me the biggest and, hug at the race. And, and suddenly, you know, it's a completely different picture than right. it was at the end of day one for you. Yeah. And Miro gave me a huge hug at the end of like, I, I just felt like I was a comrade. Uh-huh. Um, I felt respected and I felt not like I wanted, re- I guess part of me did want respect because not respect in the sense that I feel like they owed it to me, but just, I, I was like, I cause they don't owe me crap. They're, they're, they've been doing this for 20 years and I'm this new guy coming in. And I remember when we was like, you were such a good rookie. You were a rookie. And I'm like, mm-hmm. it's weird to think you're a rookie when you're 40, but it's the truth, man. Mm-hmm. It just goes to show you how dedicated they are that they've been in the game this long. Yeah. They've been doing it for a long time. And meanwhile, I'm at home, like looking at the splits on the computer and, and just thinking, there's no way this guy's gonna be able to run tomorrow. Like you just blew it out. Like you were so, determined, possibly desperate to redeem yourself that you threw everything to the wind and just overextended yourself and then some to kind of get back in the mix. And I'm like, I hope he can stand up when he wakes up in the morning. And it wasn't a need for, (laughs) it wasn't a stand, a a need for redemption for anybody else, but to try to get me to get to the position so I could be, I I wanted to, I, I wanted to win, man. Right. I know. Um, and I know how well I recover. So I wasn't worried about the recovery for the run mm. at all. Mm. Um, and Rhonda worked on my legs and I, I did great recovery. I had, I probably ate a little too much that night cause I was just taxed. Um, and I felt good the next morning, man. Mm-hmm. So what was the run strategy? Uh, and I think I talked to you, you did that night and I was and like, dude, you were encouraging. Please do not try to run with Alexander and Miro from the gun. Cause those guys are going to take off. Like it's a five K and you told me you're like, Christian, I remember exactly what you said. You're like, Christian, dude, this could shake out for you. Mm-hmm. And, and he's like, I don't know if you're going to catch Miro, but he goes, if you took enough, you told me if you took enough out of their legs, you might, I was like, you don't know what's going to happen. You, mm-hmm. you kept on telling me it's a long race. It's but a long, you got to have to be smart, you know? Yeah. And, and you can't, you, you're not going to be able to like redline it from the gun and, and I didn't. run like you did on the bike. And I didn't expect to be standing. No, I talked with Hillary before the race. I'm like, what do you, what do you plan on running? And She's like seven, I can't remember, I think she said 730s. Right. Um, or 730, not 730s. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
we had a little bit of discussion and the, you're right, dude, those guys took off like it was a 5k. Mm-hmm. Um, and I let everybody go and I said, I'm sticking to eight minutes. And I did, I hit mm-hmm. the first marathon at three twenty two, twenty three. I felt great. Um, I run with Hillary a couple miles. We had talked. That was really cool. That was a really good experience for me because she, now she's a mind game player too, but not in the sense, she's just such a competitor that she is so, um, I don't know that I've ever experienced any other athletes so in tune with their body. Um, well, I mean, she has so much experience. It's ridiculous. She's just so smart and so savvy and so, um, so I ran with her. We we ran together for a while. I was like, I'm running eight. Just stay with me. And she's clipping away, and we were talking. And and then there was a point around mile 22 or, tw- or 20 that I just was like, I'm. I just felt good. I just kept going. I caught sheeper, and then at mile 26, like I told Joe and Rhonda, and I was like, Don't tell me where anybody's at until the first marathon's over. Mm-hmm. And Lennox is like, Joe's like, Dude, Ribeiro's walking. Something's wrong with his hip. He's got, he's got a hitch in his giddy up. He said, he's like, you're going to catch him, man. And I'd already caught cheaper and I was in third. Um, I think I was in third and then between miles and 26 and 30. Nope. Starts to unwind. Throwing up again. What's going on? Cramps. Throwing up. Mm -hmm. I just threw up for the next 22 miles constantly. It was gross. What, what was your nutrition? What were you using for nutrition? Uh, well, at that time I, by then I was on the Coke. Um, and I remember Chris telling me, wait as long as you can on the Coke. Um, but I was the first 10 miles I had diarrhea really bad. So I had to stop. Um, my stomach was really messed up mm-hmm. from the, from the day, just from everything. But I, I just had this horrible cramping in my stomach, cramping, like you'd had food poisoning cramping. Mm-hmm. I stopped and had used the bathroom a couple of times pushed a lot of fluids and my my idea was just to drink i had scratch i had some water i had some gatorade um i had gels um i was just doing my best to and ron was like you got to get solids in banana i mean we were i was just trying to that first marathon to get as much as i could in so the back half i could stick with the coke and the water but it didn't matter whatever i put in i threw up Mm -hmm. and so what do you do on your walking was I walking? Yeah. I, I walked. Yeah. yeah. But not, not, I mean, I walked as, from mile 26 to, so what are we talking about? I hit mile 26 and Rhonda said she saw a change in me at mile 23, but she didn't say anything to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't feel it till mile 26 or 27 because I got my first split. Steve King was like, Christian's gaining. I felt good. My, my, my motivation was high. My morale was up. I changed my shoes, but then I went back. My shoes were hurting. Um, and then, uh, I turned around around mile 31 or 32, or maybe it was a little bit even later than that. I saw Hillary coming and, uh, Joe and Dorothy, they ran with me the last 22 miles on and off. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were tenacious about not letting me walk. Um, just tenacious. And I remember at one point too, I'd fallen onto the floor and I was like, Oh Lord, help me. And Dorothy's like, get up. You can pray later. We're running. And she's just five foot one, you know, stuff. But I just, I tried everything and nothing would stay down. Mm-hmm. Um, so that last 10 miles, where are you in the standings? Like, so you still have Ribeiro and Miro ahead of you. Hillary caught me and Hillary. 
I don't know if she, I don't think Sheeper caught me again. Somebody else caught me. Another Brazilian guy caught me, but he was like ninth or tenth. Right. And I know there's a change that takes place in me because it's it was at that point I was like I don't care what place is he in tenth. Who cares? Let him catch me. Right. Whereas normally I'd be like I gotta go, man. Um, but but Rich, I was hurting. Mm-hmm. I was hurting like I'd never hurt before. Yeah. And it was uh, insulting, man. Just like visceral. Mm-hmm. to the point where you think everybody's out to get you. I remember telling Dorothy, shut up. I was like, Dorothy, you can't talk anymore because they were trying to encourage me. And mm-hmm. after they were like, try to keep his mind on other things. And um, uh, the pro that lives next to, to Lieto in Hawaii, he's the Aus- Austrian guy. Oh, Tom, I don't know. He, he rode next to me for a couple miles. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, and he knew I was a Chris Lieto's friend. and But... I don't know if Joe and Dorothy would have been there if I would have finished. So how, how do you get to the finish line? I just, I was praying the whole time. Yeah. And, and even Gourley had mentioned to me, he's like, I don't think I've ever seen anything like, I, th- I think that maybe God was the only one that got you through there. Cause it was, it was, um, bad shape. Ian was crying. <laughs> Rhonda was crying. Ian was scared. Um, it just hurt dude. Yeah. So, so you so you cross the finish line and so Miro Miro wins the double marathon. Miro got tagged twice. So, but Miro but Miro ends up pulling out like this crazy Hail Mary and ends up winning the race cuz he he was able to get enough of a gap on Alexander. To, With still to two, two two penalties. He got 12 minute right. penalties. Yeah, exactly, and the penalties. So Alexander gets it together enough to finish the race in second place. Yeah. He didn't get passed by you, but Hillary gets third, right? Yep. In the, in the double marathon. And then you come in at seven hours. What was your, I can't, uh, no, I think yeah. I was, I think I was just over eight. Oh, you were just over eight. Yeah. So you had a hard time. It was right? sheeper. It was, it was Ribeiro or it was Krieger, Ribeiro, sheeper, Hillary, me. Uh-huh. Um, I was fourth male, fifth overall. Right. Okay. Um, and Ribeiro was the first one to congratulate. I mean, he was, that was a that was a, that was a big deal for me, mm-hmm. dude. If you can just balance those three days out a little bit better, you know what I mean. Like you, you're all over the map, you know. In I terms know. of, and it started off. It's not you know. It just got off on the wrong foot because of the ocean and the stomach stuff. But you know, there's a you can dial it in and like perfect what you're doing, and I think you'll have a quantum leap in your performance. I met with the doctor when I got back, and he told me. Um, actually it was one of my old coaches who's a doctor and he's like, I think he goes, I don't think you, I think you're underestimating the effects of that swim over the course of the next, cause even the couple of days after I was still kind of, kind of loopy and dizzy and it wasn't the type of loopy and dizzy feel after doing a race. It was like, Mike, I was a little bit off balance. Um, but that swim was the biggest surprise of my life. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm not a natural, sw- dude, you're, I, I don't have your abilities and talents or, or when, when, when Hillary gets out in the water and you see a swimmer swim like that, you're just like, what is, what am I seeing right now? It's like art. Um, the same way that Ribeiro and Krieger ran and rode. Um, but I have work to do. I know that. So when are you coming back? To race? Yeah. I will be racing Ultraman Florida. This year? Next year. Next year. Next February. So, okay, next February. And then, All right. And then tentatively Ultraman Hawaii, the championships. All right. Uh, the guy that won Canada should be there in, in Hawaii next year. And the guy that won Florida will be 
in Florida with Inaki, which will be good. Um, I have a race in Bend. Mm-hmm. Um, Bend 250. Yep. Good, man. Yep. Well, uh, <coughs> we got to talk about... I want to talk about man, dude, Africa, are we going man. too long? Dude, so how dude, long we've been we... going for two hours and 35 minutes. Dude, is this too long? What's up with we that? We haven't even uh, talked about Africa. Is that yet, cool dude. that you have this long of a podcast? <laughs> dude, it's, I can do whatever I want. <laughs> okay. All right, so... This year has a little bit of a different focus for you. Right. It's, a, it's a very service-oriented thing. You just got back from Kenya. Yep. So, t- and you showed me this five-minute sort of uh, trailer video yep. um, from a documentary project that you're working on from this experience of being there. Correct. Um, so tell me what it is. I know it's called the Amina Project, right. but explain what this whole thing is about. So I just teamed up with uh, Ian and Ann May. Uh, they started a nonprofit in Portland. Ian was, uh, ran the, the caribou clinic in, Ke- in Kenya, which is a place where women that have been raped and um, are pregnant and have no way to get the stuff that they need. Um, he basically, him and his wife and his children moved to Kenya for three years. They got embedded in the culture, learned the language, and then they ran the caribou clinic and then they came back to America. Well, the people that were there said, we miss you. And Ian said, find a place that needs some that needs resources and they went and found one of the most desolate destitute areas in Kenya and they established the Amina project, which is the name of their daughter. Mm-hmm. It's a school. Um, and it's a place where these kids that have absolutely no chance at a life at all, get education and food mm-hmm. and to see the reaction of these children, um, 75 to 80 kids a day come and through a strange course of events, I I met up with him and I said, Hey, I want to do what you're doing. Um, I want to be a part of this. I want to bring medicine to this village. Here are my talents. This is what I do. Um, and we met and we're like brothers. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, and he said, okay. So I said, I want to, I want to raise some funds and some awareness for what you're doing. And that's where I'm at. So I went to Kenya with him. Yeah. I, How long were you in Kenya for? I was uh, gone for about two weeks, but I was only in Kenya for eight days or nine days because the travel is so crazy. Right. I was at the Amina Project for four or five days, and then I went up to Eldoret, where the runners, where Kip Kengo and mm-hmm. um, the rim up there, where all the big runners are at. Oh, wow. I spent a couple of days up there with uh, my, one of my closest friends, Ted, at the Open Arms Village. He does uh, mission work over there too. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so just in watching the video and kind of how you explained it to me, uh, you know, it's it's unimaginable just how destitute this situation is. And you're seeing, you know, these kids who are just in terrible yep. physical condition yep. and malnourished, et cetera. Um, and I feel like, you know, we've become kind of, uh, you know, what's the word? Um you know, we see so much of this kind of footage, you know, sort of like, oh, here's the... Just okay, getting anesthetized. The, here, yeah, like here's the kids in Africa yep. and, and here's the plea to help yep. and nothing ever seems to change. And, and, yep. and, and it's like, yeah, you become numbed out. Yeah, you, you do. Know? And it seems so far away yep. from my daily experience that it's easy for me to compartmentalize yep. it and just be like, all right, well, cool, dude, nice, you know keep it up yeah, you know, and like go, let's go to Starbucks. You know what I mean? Like, so 
what is, you know, what is the solution when you see that and you're just like, it's not getting any better. You know, it's like, it's pretty freaking bad. It is getting better what they're doing here though. Uh And that I think is the big, there's a vortex in like a vacuum in the United States, especially when you have people in a room and you ask them for money because we have bastardized giving in the United States where you give a dollar and 60 cents of it goes to an intern that's that trying to take right well i think i think americans are getting very hip and savvy to giving and giving has changed and progressed in quite quite a number of cool and interesting ways and it's never been more awesome to be a social entrepreneur exactly and, and to have a you know an ngo and and like when i was in college like that was not something that people were that interested right. in doing and now it's like it's like cool to right. do that you yeah know? And, and it's, it's like th- and there's a there's a different vibe to it but i also think that the american public now because of technology there are ways for these ngos to connect the giver to the result of the give exactly. in a way that didn't exist. And people are like, I don't want to give to, you know, I don't want to call a charity out, but like big charity right. X, because I have no idea where that money's going. It's probably going to pay rent at some skyscraper in Manhattan. I not saw going it. to the well, you know what I mean? Like Haiti is a great example of that. Haiti was a great example of where, the, where, where money didn't get to where it was supposed to go. And, um, I haven't been charity. Yeah, people have been burned. They're like, right, like, right. And when I saw the results of what two people, a small, like four people in Portland are doing in outside of Nairobi in this little village, when you, cause I've had people say like, dude, what do I mean? Cause there are a lot of people just dude, they don't care. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not a guilt thing. I'm like, whatever, that's cool. But like, when you see, like when you see the tangible results of, of having your hands on these kids or these adults that have never been touched before by a white guy who they're heralded as godlike status to come mm-hmm. down off their perch and hug me and love me and cry with me and pray with me and touch me. The medicine is doesn't even matter. And Ian told me that. He's like, you know what, dude? He goes, you think you're doing something by, you know, fixing their lesions and finding what's wrong with their hearts and doing all this. He's like, what you're doing and the love that you're showing. And dude, I'll tell you, the biggest thrill for me was to have those villagers ask me to not go. They're to like, not leave, to not they're go like dude, don't go. And I told Rhonda when I got back that for me to function in that realm made me feel like I was like operating. I was doing what I was supposed to do. And nobody knew where I was at. And it, it, it correlated with endurance. And I started to think about all the times that I was lonely on the islands or lonely in the races where nobody knows where you're at, nobody's what you're doing, except now I am holding some lady's baby who their mother has spent the last 13 years chewing her food and giving it to her. That, that girl in the movie, she, her mom spent 13 years mm. chewing her food to feed her because she, she can't do it. Right. Um, but it's so hard for people to understand that unless they go and see it. But how do you, how do you solve the problem? Like, how do you create infrastructure there that will um, hmm. lead to a sustainable, you know, solution that can get to the root of this and rectify the problem as opposed to, well, we just have to go visit every six months because no one else is there. And that's the interesting Ian, about like, the Amina Project is Ian is employing and equipping Kenyans to take care of Kenyans. Mm. White man is not coming to fix the issue. Um, I heard somebody once tell me before, it's kind of cool to adopt kids now, and it has been for a while, and I think adoption is vital. But um, 
And I've talked to uh, Al Sergal, the, mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah, yeah. your buddy. We've talked a little bit about this, and I've got some other friends that are in adoption. But um, if we don't equip Kenyans or Haitians or any places that aren't as fortunate and as blessed as we are to take care of their own communities through what they do and not what we do, it won't be sustainable, Rich. Right. Because um, we're putting a Band-Aid on an on a amputated hand. So Ian has... And fit- not only, it prevents real solution it from does. taking root. Exactly. Because you become reliant upon the sort of, you know... Yeah, the it, caregiver, and you're never sort of having to solve it yourself. You're right. right? And, and Ian and Ann have, have formulated a nonprofit organization that has a school that feeds children twice a day where they are um, enabling Kenyans to be in charge of Kenyans. And when you see the results of children and their parents bringing them to this school and the kids clapping and singing and learning, and, and like you're giving hope. Um, to a hopeless situation and, and you're not forgetting the forgotten. And, um, you know, Ian told me I paid $8 for a woman to go have her. We found her and she was dying from infection. She had her whole leg was gangrenous and she was dying and I paid $8 to get her to the hospital. And now she's, she's fixed. Mm-hmm. Um, Ted, my buddy, uh, so there is that direct connection with the giver and you, you, you're, you get to follow the kind of exactly it, You just don't like piss your money away and you're right. like, where'd it go? I don't know. Um, and you hear people say like, well, like for the cost of a latte, you can feed a kid for it. That stuff doesn't right. It just, it becomes white noise. Exactly. You know? So the Amina project and what Chris Lieto and more than sport are doing, that is what has been so needed in a, um, you know, in, in an avenue of our life that has been rusted. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, and where's all this leading for you? Uh, well, I'll tell you, honestly, I think it's going to lead like, uh, the fundraiser and the awareness campaign that I'm doing and the, and the hope that I can help fund a medical access fund for the Kenyan people that live in Kiangon Bay, which is my hope. And to help, I'm trying to even help raise some money for more than sport for mm-hmm. Chris and his operational costs, because I think what he's doing validates the need for athletes that are money making machines to just do something. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me personally, it's going to hopefully lead me there again and again and again. Um, and how does, uh, so for the listener, Chris Lieto, pro triathlete, yep. Ironman yep. champion guy, he has his own uh, foundation. It's called more than sport. Correct. Essentially what they do is, uh, well, Chris came up with this idea because as a result of being a pro triathlete, he gets to go to all these amazing, beautiful tropical locations for these races and, and he gets to stay in nice hotels and it's only when he's out on the bike or on the run where he, he sees the kind of the reality of where these places are and he gets yeah. to see the way people are actually living. And it occurred to him, like, we come in for a weekend, we do this race and we leave. We should really invest in these communities that we are so fortunate to visit. So he starts this foundation and the idea is you stay after the race and you contribute in some way, whether yep. it's building a house or yep. my understanding is it takes different forms for different places, et cetera. Yeah. He's in the Philippines, really cool. right? He's in the so Philippines in, right now he is, wow. where that, where the, where the tsunami mm-hmm. or the, I think it was the flood at, he's in the Philippines right now doing a basketball camp with an, like an right. NBA basketball typhoon, camp. Yeah. Was typhoon, Maybe it was a typhoon. Yeah. yeah. Um, but how does more than sport like dovetail with Amina project in Kenya? Like how does that work? Well, number one, we use each other as support and encouragement. 
on like just a base level. But the way that more than sport is formulated is, you know, he's got Chrissy Wellington, Craig Alexander, the U S cycling team, a couple of pro surfers, Mm -hmm. one of the San Francisco, uh, Giants pitchers, and you actually use the um, infrastructure that Chris has built with a with his l- legal team and five hundred one three C status to basically um, promote a cause that's um, that's personal to the athlete, and it gives an avenue for you to build a. Um, awareness campaign around what you feel, you know, like Craig Alexander's part of more than sport. He works with, uh, the, the burn foundation, I think, and, and where he's from. And, mm-hmm. um, I think Luke McKenzie might even be a part of it. Um, but it's, a, it's a way it, it, it's more than the just do it campaign, you know? Um, it, uh, it's neat to see Chris say it's more than just the finish line. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's legit, man. I mean, you've hung with him, so. Um. Yeah, but it's it's the follow through. It's the difference between the statement and the action. Exactly. It's all about like, all right, well, he actually is in the Philippines and he's doing this. And I know he's built houses and he's done all these amazing things. And I've seen how that organization has kind of organically grown over the last couple of years and it's not going anywhere, but up. Dude, it's like <laughs> that. I, I was listening to your podcast. Was it nice? Who is the film guy from Manhattan? Neistat? Oh, Casey Neistat. Yeah. In, in his, uh, in his clip that he's got, uh, the, where he's going around the world, there's that clip from Gandhi that says, um, uh, action shows, um, uh, what does it say? Uh, action signifies um, priorities, and that's what Chris's right. um, his action signifies. You know the priorities. So. Right, right. So we're doing the Amina Project fundraiser, um, and we'll see where that goes. Right, cool. And uh, and you're looking to go back to Kenya at some point, right? Yep, yep. And the cool thing is, I'm able to network all the people that I have supporting me, and. I've told that like the the sponsors that I have, the Adidas and and Polar, and I'm not trying to plug these guys, but I've told them, look, I'm not the world's greatest athlete. I'm telling you right now, I've I've said the same thing, but you gave me this advice. I'm like, here's what I can give you. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's where my legs will go, but here's where my heart will take us. And it seems to really resonate with some of the people that have been working with me. So I think I think we're at an age where even some of the great athletic corporations are starting to see now that man, there is more than just sport. Um, and like Damon Lillard from the Portland Trailblazers has got a big campaign up there for bullying. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's just it's just cool. It's just really cool. Cool man. Cool man. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm excited to see where uh, where this takes you in your life, man. It's awesome. Well, thanks, Rich. Dude, I didn't mean to. When you said two hours and thirty minutes, I'm like. Man, dude. What do we do? Dude, we're at 250. <laughs> but you know what? This is not the... I think I went longer with... Uh, who was it? Oh, Mac Danzig and I. We went like th- over three hours, I think. So do we keep, don't do you, sweat it. We want, no, let's wrap it up. Dude. All right, I'm cool. hungry. All right, so <laughs> I think we did it, though. Yeah. Did we do it? Yeah, You're this right, is it, man. Dude, this how is, you yeah, feel? I feel good. It's a dream come true, and I, right. kn- I know... I your expectations too high. I don't want to like, you know... Dude, it's all good. Yeah, it's really good, man. Right, I, I really, really appreciate it. That was a pleasure, man. Thanks. You're, uh, you're an inspiration, and um, and uh, it is going to be cool to see what what happens next in your life, man. And I will eagerly uh, follow you and await to see what occurs. Well, I hope this isn't the last time I'm with you, man. So no, I don't think it's going to be. So cool. All right, uh, 
you want to find out more about Christian, best place to do that is ChristianIsaacson.com, right? Correct. And uh, on Twitter, you're Luke920. Correct. Right? So Instagram, Luke920. Tell me what Luke920 is real quick. Luke920 is a verse from the Bible that says, who do you say that I am? And uh, one of the great philosophers of the time said, whether you are a Christian or not a Christian or believe in God or believe in Jesus or don't, um, it's a question that everybody has to answer. Who, you know, who do you say Christ is? And, um, for me, it's just a good catalyst to, to talk to people Mm -hmm. and just say, Hey man, this is what Christ has done in my life. And, um, you know, he, he loves me and he loves you. And, um, it's just one of those little verses in the Bible that has really, um, it pierces me every time I come up to a, to a, to a, tumultuous time, whether I'm in a race or uh, I'm in Kenya, when I come up and I look at my own securities and I hear that voice, who do you say I am, man? Because if you say I am who the Bible says I am, then you should have no problem here. And on your, on your site, um, your kind of avatar or your like sort of graphic is is like this kind of faceless man with the glasses. Correct. And your tagline is really, uh, you know, I am nothing. Right. Right. Which is, which I interpret as just this sort of, you know, profession of humility, but I'm interested in where that comes from. That comes from John three thirty that says, um, he must increase and I must decrease. And you know, when you say humility, Rich, it's funny. Cause I was thinking about that. Cause I think that about you. Um, and you don't ever even have to say it. And you, you just, you exude humility. Um, and I think that's one of the things that, that I read, that was the biggest theme for, for me reading your book. Rhonda said the same thing, but in the Bible, it never says be humble. It always says humble yourself. It's an action because we as humans are wired to, to not humble ourselves, to be in the spotlight, I want the attention regardless of how many causes I try to have people look at. Um, so I just want to make sure that um, I, I humble myself before um, Christ because those verses work together because he humbled himself every day by coming down here and being with us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people think like, ah, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. But dude, every day he woke up and died to himself um, for, for me and for you and for other people. So, um, and the other, the other thing is the, I am nothing. And the faceless thing is, dude, you're the first one to pick up on that. You're, what do you mean? The, the, the faceless, like no, just my glasses. Right. Um, and that correlation, um, it's just funny cause they go together. Like I'm yeah, just, of course they do. Yeah. So, but you are the first person that has ever well, maybe I'm, I'm sure other people see that. Well, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. just like verbalize it to me like, oh man, that's kind of cool. So, um, anyway, dude. Um, all right. Well, all right. Luke 920. Luke 920. That's uh, on, on Instagram. It's Luke 920. Also, Luke 920 right? on Instagram, L-U-K-E 920. Right, and then on Twitter, Luke 920. And I'm redoing my website. My blog is going to be, it's going to be much more streamlined, so it'll make sense. But all my links are on my website. Cool. And uh, Amina Project. Aminaproject.org. You can find links there too. A-M-E-E-N-A yep. Project. Check them out, man. Fa- Facebook too. All, all the stuff is on my social media sites. Cool. Cool, man. All right, man. All right, dude. Love you. Boom. We did it. Right on. All right. Peace. Plants. All right, everybody. That's our show. 
how'd it go for you? Tell me what you think. Let me know in the comments section at richroll.com on the episode uh, page for this particular episode. And why don't you just go and let Christian know on his social media as well. And don't forget to give us a review on iTunes if it feels right to you. I'm not saying give us a five-star review. Just tell me what you think. Let us know there. Again, if you're stuck or frustrated with your life and not sure how to get off the dime, check out my new course, The Art of Living with Purpose, on mindbodygreen.com. We have uh, that iOS app, iPhone, iPad app coming soon for the podcast. We're in the final stages of just uh, tweaking it a little bit, and it's going to be up pretty pretty much, uh, I guess it has to go through the whole like Apple approval process thing, but hopefully we'll have that done pretty soon and, and up to you guys. I'll keep you posted. Um, next week, I'm going to be back with Julie on the podcast. A quick little note, uh, I've gotten messages from a couple people saying, where are all the women? It's a dude fest on your show. I'm aware of that. Uh, I actually have a bunch of uh, interviews with some really cool women emails coming up soon. So I'm aware that it's been a little while since I've had uh, a cool woman on the show. And uh, I just want to let everybody know that uh, we got lots of great women coming up. Um, I'm on top of it. Uh, anyway, after Beirut, I'm off to Saudi Arabia. I got uh, three three cities I'm going to go to there for public speaking. I'm going to be in Jeddah, Riyadh, and Al-Kabar. And I'll post Julie's episode from there and let you know uh, what it's like in that part of the world. Um, the conversation I had with Julie is a really great one. Lots of stuff about gratitude and a lot of helpful information on that. So look forward to that. That'll be going up uh, late. My plan is to get that up again late Sunday night. That's it. Uh, want to support, support the show? Tell a friend. You know what to do. Use the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. Won't cost you anything. Amazon kicks us some commission change, and that has helped us out a lot, you guys. Thank you so much for doing that. You can also donate to the show. Uh, you can subscribe on a weekly basis or a monthly basis by throwing a little bit of coin our way. The show's always free. You don't have to do it. But for those of you who have taken that extra step and supported us in that way, uh, we greatly, greatly appreciate it. So thanks so much. Don't forget to... Uh, Throw up an Instagram picture of you listening to the show. Again, I love that stuff. Go to richworld.com for all your plant power provisions. We've got T-shirts, beanies, or as they call them in Canada, toques, uh, trucker hats, nutritional products like my athletic recovery supplement, vitamin B12 supplement, uh, our new ion electrolyte uh, supplement, and lots of more stuff on the way. All right, I'm out of here. Thanks, you guys. I'll check back in with you in a few days when I get to Saudi Arabia. And until then... Do something that scares you. You might just surprise yourself. Peace. Plants. Yeah.